Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Warren Thompson. I'm Pastor Trent. Sorry. Thanks for joining us today. We're on episode number 21 today, and we're going to continue our discussion about the ways that God brings to us the completed salvation that Christ has won for all sinners. In other words, uh, salvation distributed is the topic we're going to continue speaking of. Today, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And of course, that might go by a, a variety of different names, but it's not something that should be uncommon to virtually any Christian because I think virtually all Christian denominations have some practice of the Lord's Supper. Uh, what is it? What does it do? What does it bring? Is it just a symbolic thing? What What is going on there today? We're going to start that conversation. What does the Bible say about the nature of the Lord's Supper? So what is the Lord's Supper, uh, I guess, maybe would be just the first question that we would want to ask ourselves. We get this information from St. Matthew's Gospel, from St. Mark's Gospel, St. Luke's Gospel, and also from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. You might say, well, we're missing a a gospel in there, St. John. Uh, Yeah, he doesn't explicitly speak about it, although it certainly is there throughout in various references, which we could talk about later. And it's certainly there in the book of Acts and other uh, of the letters of the New Testament as well. So, but from these sources, uh, the three Gospels and and 1 Corinthians, uh, we can say that our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me, or quite literally, into the remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in in the remembrance of me, or again, into the remembrance of me. So there are various viewpoints as to what and why we celebrate the Lord's Supper as what we receive there, or what what is it all about. Uh, So today we're going to try to talk in broad terms. I I know that it's, uh, somebody will inevitably say, well, that's not our position, that's not my position. But when we look at Christendom today, there's roughly three essential viewpoints on the sacrament of the altar or the Lord's Supper. Uh, There is, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, we would say, uh, and I'm trying to be fair, like I'd, they would say even, I think, that uh, their position is transubstantiation, that bread and wine are changed in substance into Christ's body and blood, so that what is received is Christ's body and blood alone, period. In the Reformed churches, the non-Lutheran Protestant churches, there is more of what we would call a symbolic view of the Lord's Supper. They would say that the bread and wine or bread and grape juice in many of those churches merely symbolizes Jesus' body and blood and what he did for us, that you actually don't receive that body and blood at all. And then the third viewpoint, which is the Lutheran point, viewpoint, we would call the real presence. We would say that the Lord's Supper is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, united with the bread and the wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Now, we talked about a sacrament and a definition of that a while back, and we said a sacrament is a sacred act instituted by Christ himself. There's a visible element, and uh, which is united with the word of Christ. 
the promise of Christ and through which the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation is brought to us, distributed to us, and so on. And we talked about baptism in this regard. So we would say the Lord's Supper is also a sacrament. It, it is one of the mysteries of Christ, so to speak. And we celebrate it for a number of reasons. You know, first of all, Jesus said, do this. So do this would also, we would say, include the command to speak the words of institution or consecration of our Lord over the elements of bread and wine. We know that this was instituted at a, a Passover meal on Monday, Thursday. And uh, that's significant because we know what was used. So we know that there was bread and there was wine, uh, and that is what the church has used for uh, nearly 2,000 years. It's a recent innovation that people say, well, you can substitute things. You could use grape juice, oh, because it's still fruit of the vine. Um, as we talk about the benefits of the Lord's Supper, we're going to see why such practices really begin to shed doubt, and that's kind of the opposite reason that Jesus instituted this sacrament. It's there for our comfort, for our reassurance. Uh, it's not ours to tinker with. It is the Lord's Supper. So we're always better off doing exactly as the Lord himself said, using the elements that the Lord himself said, bread and wine. And uh, as I said, we call it the Lord's Supper. We also call it Holy Communion. It's called the Sacrament of the Altar, the Lord's Table. Uh, the early Christians often referred to it as the Eucharist, uh, the giving of thanks. So it goes by a number of names, but uh, we're all referring to the same events or the same sacrament here. Now, I, I mentioned that there are sort of three different viewpoints, and not to get philosophical, and again, I don't want to oversimplify. I'm sure people would correct me and say there's, there's more nuance to these positions than that. But I would say, in a certain sense, there are... are uh, a couple of driving ideas that uh, formulate or help form these, these positions that various churches take. And one of them is this axiom that says that the finite is not capable of containing the infinite. So in regard to the Lord's Supper, people would say that uh, the finite, bread and wine, is not capable of containing the infinite God. And that becomes a driving idea that really pushes people to certain positions. So, for instance, if you hold that the finite is not capable of containing the infinite, that presents you problems. What do you receive in the Lord's Supper? And in the Roman Catholic Church, if they start with that principle, they would naturally come to this idea, well, we know that we receive Christ's body and blood, therefore, there can't be bread and wine anymore. It has to be changed because the finite is not capable of containing the infinite. So you end up with a position called transubstantiation, that the bread and wine have been changed in substance. It might look like bread, taste like bread, you know, smell like bread, whatever it is, but it's not bread. If you were to look at it under a microscope, it has been changed in substance. It is only Christ's body and blood that you receive. Now, likewise, you know, usually people will say the reform position is the complete opposite, sort of in a certain sense, to the Roman Catholic position. That's not entirely true. Because I think they would uh, sometimes also agree with that axiom that says the finite is not capable of containing the infinite. And uh, they would just say that leads them to the opposite conclusion. Since the finite bread and wine are not capable of containing the infinite God, therefore the infinite God is not present in that bread and wine. It is only bread and wine. 
the best it can do is symbolize or give you a picture or represent or whatever you want to call it. We would say we disagree with both because we would say there's a fundamental flaw in the axiom itself. If the finite is not capable of containing the infinite, how do we describe or how do we explain the incarnation of God in the flesh in the first place? The scriptures say, in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. In other words, the infinite God is there in that man, Jesus Christ. So it's not a problem for us. That is not the, a driving uh, philosophy or axiom that w- would affect our understanding. We would say God can do whatever he wants. If he wants to be present wherever he wants to, he can be. And we, we just need to pay attention to what he says and where, you know, where he says he is. Our position, as I said, is, is called the real presence. And we'll talk more about what we believe we actually receive. Now, in, in a certain sense, we would say we are much closer to the Roman Catholic position. We would agree with them that Christ's body and blood is truly present in the Lord's Supper and that we receive that body and blood in the Lord's Supper. So that is kind of the historic position of the church that we see for thousands of years. Um, well, not thousands, but over a thousand years. Really, this, this position of symbolism or representation is, is something that really picks up speed or popularity after the time of the Reformation with the radical reformers, not with Luther. So, how do we know that we receive the true body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper? In St. Luke's Gospel, the 22nd chapter, Jesus said, This is my body, which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, uh, at its simplest meaning, is means is. You can't make, make is mean something other than is. Uh, if, if Jesus wanted to say this represents my body, he could have said that. There's words that he could have used to, to do that. If he, if he wanted to say this symbolizes my body and blood, he could have said that. He didn't say that. He said is. And we don't get the right to change words and their meanings. Is means is. That's, that's the simplest, uh, you know, sort of laws of language in a certain sense. So Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, if that were all that we knew, uh, that should be enough. However, we've got this wonderful letter from St. Paul that he writes to the first Corinthians. And there was a variety of problems in this congregation at Corinth. Specifically, there was some problems in regard to the Lord's Supper. Uh, people were not really paying attention. They didn't know what they were doing. Some people were getting drunk. It was a mess. It was a giant mess. And so Paul addresses some of these problems specifically as we look at chapter 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians. We come across some very specific words of St. Paul that definitely help shed a light on how the early church or how the apostles understood the Lord's Supper. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia in the Greek, a a participation, a a real partaking, a communion? All of these words are sometimes used to translate that word koinonia, a fellowship, in the blood of Christ. So, the cup, a fellowship with the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia, 
a real partaking, a communion in the body of Christ. So that's very, very revealing. Paul says that the cup or the wine is, in fact, a a communion with the blood of Christ and that the bread is a communion with the body of Christ. He doesn't say these things represent or symbolize. He says this is a real participation, a real partaking. That, That is very, very important, very revealing as to how the apostles, the early church, understood this. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 11, There's the matter of those who were receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And it was to their harm and detriment. In fact, some had fallen asleep. They had even died uh, because of their irreverence, because of their uh, lack of discerning in regard to the sacrament of the altar. And Paul has some warnings there in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Very interesting. So there's a, there's a danger with unworthy reception, which we'll talk about what that actually means. But notice what Paul says the person who receives in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against. They'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Now, you know, it's, it's hard to sin against something that's not really there. And of course, you know, Paul's point is that this is serious matter. This is what you're actually receiving. And, uh, you know, if, if you're doing it flippantly or without, you know, discernment and all these things, you're actually guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So, you know, we as confessional Lutherans firmly uh, believe in the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper You know, number one, because Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. Uh, The same body given and blood shed for you on the cross. The same body and blood uh, that was pushed forth from the womb of the Virgin, Mary. And because uh, the cup or the wine, as Paul says, is a real communion or participation with the blood of Christ. And the bread is a real participation, a communion with the body of Christ. And because the unworthy communicants are guilty not of sinning against bread and wine, but against the body and blood of the Lord. So it, it's not as though God has left this complete, left us in the dark to guess about this. First Corinthians becomes very revealing. And of course, we can read the early church as well and see how they understood these things. One of the charges that was leveled against the early Christians by those outside the church is that they were cannibals because they heard them talking about eating and drinking Christ's body and blood, eating his flesh, drinking his blood. And of course, they didn't understand what that meant in its sacramental sense. So uh, they, they would you know, come to the conclusion that those Christians are a bunch of cannibals. But I, that shows you that that idea of a real partaking of Christ's body and blood was certainly there. Now, again, the Reformed churches, the non-Lutheran Protestants, teach a symbolic presence in the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the wine only symbolize or represent the true body and blood of Jesus. Uh, The Roman Catholic position would be that you certainly receive Christ's body and blood, and that's just about all that you receive. Uh, Whereas the Lutheran Church would say we teach the real presence. And so therefore, which kind of leads us to the next question, uh, are bread and wine changed? in substance, into body and blood. Is, do we believe with the Catholics 
uh, that bread and wine are actually changed in substance into body and blood? Or do we believe with the reform that this bread and wine merely symbolize, there's no change, uh, they merely symbolize or represent Christ's body and blood? So again, looking at these verses, uh, Luke 22, Jesus said, This is my body, which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the New Testament in my blood. And again, St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a real partaking, uh, a communion in the body of Christ? No, so we would say there is a change that takes place in the sacrament, but it's not necessarily a change of substance. We begin with the elements of bread and wine. Paul talks about you know, a cup of blessing, the wine, and the bread that we break. He's, he mentions those things. But he also goes on to mention Christ's body and Christ's blood. We don't say that the bread changes in substance so that it's no longer bread. We, we say that in, with, and under that bread, we do receive the body of our Lord. And likewise with the wine. In, with, and under that wine, we receive the blood of our Lord. Now, we would say, therefore, there are four things present, because this is exactly what St. Paul himself has said. There's bread, body, wine, blood. We, we, there's there's meant much more we need to say about this as well. You know, how is it received? What is the benefit? All of these things. But we would also say we don't understand it as though we are, uh, you know, chewing with our teeth the body and blood of our Lord, and then it goes into our digestive system and out of our body like the other food we eat. Obviously, this is a supernatural partaking. Uh, it is a sacramental eating. And yet, we would, we would definitely hold that we receive in our mouths and on our tongues Christ's body and blood. The same body and blood that pushed forth from the womb of the Virgin. The same body and blood that uh, died for us on the cross of Calvary and the blood that was shed there. So, we have to be careful because there's been sort of extreme views that have put, been put forth in the history of the church uh, that we're, we articulate this very carefully. We, we certainly believe in the real presence of Christ's body and blood in, with, and under that bread and wine. You know, the question is, what effect does the Lord's Supper have then on our daily lives? Why would we celebrate it? Is it simply so that uh, we can remember the good things that Jesus did for us? That would be sort of the symbolic idea. I mean, I, I often wonder why, what's the purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper in some of those churches that teach that? And I guess you could have to say, well, for one, Jesus said, do this. So, I mean, if you want to be obedient to Jesus, you better do it. So there's kind of this command and obedience emphasis. We would say that's kind of an emphasis of the law. But is there any benefit received from it? And... Uh, in that viewpoint, uh, not really. I mean, at least I'm not aware of that they teach. Maybe there's some sort of uh, spiritual benefit that they teach. I, I don't. Again, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouths or misrepresent any positions. I, I recognize that there are some, you know, variations or, or nuances to some of those positions. So, my point is not to make fun. My my point is just to say, you know, if we think about this and we think about what the scriptures teach and why Jesus instituted this. Uh, we'll see that it is is actually for our comfort. So, what effect does the Lord's Supper have in our daily lives? Well, Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And just like baptism, remember we said, 
it's not that there's some sort of magic in the water. It's the word that comes to the water. And here it's the word that comes to the elements of bread and wine. And nevertheless, through these things, God distributes to us the salvation that Christ has won. In other words, this is gospel. As the word of forgiveness comes to us as it's preached or read, the word of forgiveness comes to us in the waters of baptism. The word of forgiveness comes to us in the Lord's Supper. It's not three different words. It's the same word of the gospel. It's the same gospel just coming to us in three different forms. This is not radically different than anything else. Uh, But again, what does faith cling to? I mean, these are the things that are objective, that God has given to us, so that faith is not clinging to simply an emotion in me or a thought in me. It can look to something outside of me, concrete, and grab hold of it and hold on to it, like the word of forgiveness proclaimed, like uh, the waters of baptism wherein we're washed in Jesus' blood, washed clean, and also in the Lord's Supper. So, uh, it is gospel. John 15 Jesus said, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So one of the ways that we abide in Jesus and he in us is through partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Of course, we read in John 6, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. For he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I abide in him and he abides in me. That's kind of my paraphrase there. I don't have that passage in front of me, but you get the point. And I know, uh, you know, there's some controversy as to whether John 6 is referring to the Lord's Supper or not. I would say regardless, when we look at what he says there, it's certainly true. And uh, when we think about what it means to abide in Jesus and him in us, certainly we think about that when it comes to the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper. As, uh, and then, you know, the, the other side of this, I suppose, uh, St. Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, because there is one bread... Uh, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So there's this idea of fellowship or unity that is expressed when we receive the Lord's Supper. So we say there's a vertical dimension, the vertical dimension being that we receive from Christ his gifts, so that is God bestowing to us his blessings. There's also a horizontal element, and that is we are confessing something. We are confessing our faith. We are confessing our, our faith in Christ's uh, redemption and his forgiveness. We're also con- you know, confessing that with our fellow believers. There's a unity that we confess. When we, when we commune side by side with those in our congregations, we are saying we are one in faith. We agree 100%. And if we don't, why are we communing there? So, you know, it kind of goes without saying. It's common sense. As Christians uh, throughout the centuries, you don't commune at an altar that you don't agree with its teaching. I think there's this idea, this American notion that it's just me and my Jesus, where despite what anyone else thinks about anything, I know what's right, and therefore I can go receive this anywhere, and I understand, therefore, this is what I receive. But we, we want to give a clear confession about what we believe. We want to express God-pleasing unity where he has bestowed it, and certainly that unity is expressed in our partaking together of Christ's gifts, especially the Lord's Supper. So it binds us in closer fellowship with our fellow believers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we, we sit at the same table, so to speak. We eat the same food. We're sustained by the same spiritual food that our Heavenly Father bestows upon us there. So there's absolutely uh, you know, a fellowship expressed there. Now, 
something, uh, this is maybe a little bit peripheral at this point, but communion frequency. We know from the earliest centuries of the church, from the early church, even from the book of Acts, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, sort of an idiomatic expression for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, uh, that they would, uh, you know, come together every Lord's Day to break bread, you know, to hear the, the apostles' teaching and so on. And throughout the centuries, I would say the Lord's Supper in many ways was the very high point of the divine service, the church service on Sunday. It was the very centerpiece of Christian, uh, a Christian's faith and piety and existence. It was always held in their highest regard. And even up until the time of the Reformation and even after the time of the Reformation, uh, we see that it was always central to the worship of the church. There was never a Lord's Day celebrated without the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And uh, that, not to get into all the history, but with uh, various revivals and uh, the rise of pietism and different movements within uh, the Christian church, that kind of changed. This idea that says, well, we, it's so special, we don't want to treat it as common, therefore if we don't have it as often, it'll be more special to us. But remember, um, you know, I suppose if this is something that you're merely doing for God, okay, well then, yeah, maybe that's true. But we, just like with baptism, we want to ask ourselves, is the direction from God to us or is it from us to God? And as we've seen, and as we're going to see in the next episode as well, uh, that it's really about God bestowing upon us his gifts. So if that's the case, uh, why would we not want to receive these gifts often? We don't tell our pastors, well, I don't want you to preach the gospel every week. Why don't you just wait and preach it every other week or, you know, once a month? No, we need these gifts. We need the gospel for the the consolation and comfort of our guilt-ridden and our terror-ridden consciences. So uh, it doesn't mean that a Christian has to receive it every, every Sunday. There's a certain amount of examination and preparation that should take place. But the church should always make it available to those who desire it. That should at least be, you know, the bottom line. Unfortunately, that, that was lost, you know, generations ago. And at this point, uh, many of the Christians growing up, even within the Lutheran church, they've never known a Lutheran church where the Lord's Supper is celebrated every Sunday. So that would be foreign to them. That's not the way grandma did it. That's not the way mom and dad, you know, that's not the church that I grew up in. And yet, when we think about it, uh, why, why would we not want this as often as we could receive it? So, uh, you know, should we receive the Lord's Supper often is the question we're asking. Well, certainly, 1 Corinthians 11, we're reminded of, of Jesus' words, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord to death till he comes. So, there is that aspect of Jesus said, do this. You know, so it's not something we should neglect. Uh, Luke 22, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the new testament in my blood, uh, which we'll talk more about as well. That The difference between covenant and testament is, a, is an important distinction. So again, Jesus said, do this. But also, we, we look at... Uh, you know, the, the promises attached to it, the blessings attached to it, and that would be the main reason that spurs us on to why would we want to receive this often. 
Jesus would say in Matthew 26, this is my blood of the New Testament, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. Again, for the forgiveness of sins. This is important. I mean, this is not an act that we are, we are reenacting something. This is not just a symbolic, oh, you know, remember, remember Jesus? He was a good guy. You know, like, you know, saying a toast for somebody, you know. Uh, this is for the forgiveness of sins, for the, the consolation of terror-ridden consciences. Uh, and where there's forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. You know, we think about Jesus' gracious invitation, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Well, the question is where? Where does Christ give us this rest? Well, in the gospel, right? Uh, specifically, we think about the blessings of the Lord's Supper. St. Paul would say in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So, uh, one of the biggest reasons that we would want to partake or receive the Lord's Supper often is because of our great need. I mean, uh, are there Christians out there who would say, well, I'm pretty good. I, I don't need this. I, I think I can probably wait a few weeks because I've been really good lately. Uh, I don't think if we're being honest, I don't think if we're examining our lives in light of God's standard in his law, which says, uh, you know, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're really honest, we would say, uh, none of us have kept that. And where does that realization leave us? Well, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve uh, God's punishment, his eternal condemnation. Uh, spare us from this, Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. But where do we look for that mercy? Where do we look for that comfort, that reassurance that, yes, our sins have been paid for. Yes, God loves us and has forgiven us. Ah, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's that comfort that's applied to us individually as we receive Christ's body and blood there at the communion rail. That is so comforting. It's not just a general uh, God forgives sins, it's God forgives your sins. Christ himself has come to you. And there's, there's this other aspect of it. Uh, sin leads to death. Yeah. On our own, we're on a downward spiral to death, right? But Christ comes and he bestows his life to us. He gives us what is his. He's taken the guilt of our sins upon himself and he bestows his life, that divine life, that eternal life that never ends, and he gives it to us. And he comes to dwell in us and live within us. He, he gives life to our mortal bodies through this sacrament as well. That's a, that's a wonderful comfort. I don't know too many people. How, how, many, uh, how many meals do you skip a day, Lauren? None. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> well, and if you do, if you were to skip a couple meals. Uh, Make up for it later. Yeah, and I'm guessing that your wife probably wouldn't want to be around you very much because you'd probably be crabby. I'd be, and, I'd be grumpy. Yeah, grumpy, yeah. yeah. So the point is, is, you know, we eat regularly and, you know, we go from one meal and we're already thinking about the next one. This is part of our routine. Why? Because if, if you don't eat, you don't live, right? I mean, you understand that your body needs nutrients. It needs fuel for energy and to, you know, to continue life and so on. So God gives your body life through by means of food. Isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve fall into sin through partaking of food, you know, they eat what is forbidden and it brings about death instead of life. But now in the sacrament, Christ comes to us as the very tree of life. And he says, eat that you might not die. 
here's my life, that life that never ends. I've been to the grave in your place. I've burst forth victoriously. I've conquered sin. I've conquered Satan. Uh, come and eat that you may live. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing for our comfort. And when we understand that, we, we understand the great value and we, we have the desire to receive it as often as we can. But that's where we're going to leave off with this part of our discussion. And in the next episode, we'll talk more about some of the, the finer intricacies of the Lord's Supper, the benefits of the Lord's Supper, and then the proper use Uh, some of the church practices in regard to the Lord's Supper, because we know that some of those are rather controversial in our day. We'll talk about the practice of closed communion. Some people call it close. We call it closed communion. We'll talk about that and what that means and why we practice that. It's not uh, as a judgment against people so much as it is because we actually do care about people and we care about their eternal souls. So, Uh, We hope that you'll join us as we continue this discussion in our next episode. Uh, So on behalf of Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Warren Thompson. We'll see you next time.